Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Very precious thing, and I really appreciate the part each of you played in it. Your faces are helping me a great deal. And I ain't seeing any bad faces, which is lovely. <laughs> because some of the time, some of the things we talk about here are tough. And we want to fight them off. Okay, what happened after I went to that meeting, that first meeting, is, in fact, I stopped the sex poison of, uh, the title of this tape is Stopping the Poison, Sex Lust. I stopped that poison the minute the phone call was over. I have not entertained lust since then. Now, what does that mean? Uh, lust comes to the door plenty of times. And uh, knocks and I don't open the door. I've found the most important, a couple of the most important secrets of this program. Number one, when lust knocks, there is no handle on lust's side of the door. Have you ever tried getting through a door where there ain't no handle on your side? Okay, how does lust get in? The handle is on our side only. We open the handle and let lust in. That is vitally, vitally important information. How do we resist opening the door and letting lust in? We instantly pray in whatever form is appropriate to you. I got a beautiful letter the other day from a person. Uh, it was about uh, some things I had said. And he said, I thank you for the way you have helped me understand my God, Allah. And I was so touched by that because here is a man from another spiritual tradition who is saying that I was able to talk about my spiritual tradition, but respectfully enough that it was able to give him insight into his spiritual tradition. And I was respectful enough of that. And so that was very touching to me. So in whatever form, and, and this prayer will even work. God, if there is one, help me. That was the prayer of Bill's. But I'm convinced that there's another prayer that will even work. And God, I know that you do not exist, but whatever there is, instead of the God that does not exist, please come and help me. That one works too. And then, and, and, uh, something Dave, uh, G said from New Rochester, uh, he had heard me say in the tape and it really helped him is, the other thing I've found about not opening that door is I can pray longer than my luster will last. 
I might get through the end of uh, 20 God help me's and lust is still there. And I might get to three, four more Our Fathers, which happens to be the prayer I use, and lust is still there. But eventually I come to the end of a prayer and I look up and lust is gone. Now it might come back five minutes later, but that's no problem. I can pray always longer than I can lust. Now, I hate to tell you that, you whining babies that, because you use it as an excuse to not pray, because you know if I pray, then the lust won't come in, and how in the hell can I enjoy lust if I pray it away? So that's the bad news, okay? Now, we had one of the most funniest, you know, ironic, turn of events I've seen for one hell of a long time happened out in Oklahoma City. I went there right after. We had to go there, and I'll tell you more about that later. But one of our members was a member of uh, the National Council of Churches. He was the state head of, of that body. And his uh, acting out had been done in conjunction with his church work. As he was traveling around the state, uh, he'd be at the bar in the evening and hustling up some woman to go to bed with that night. Because everybody knows when we're doing church work, we need a special heavy-duty support because it's so taxing when we're laying down and giving our, our life, our literally our life blood for others. And of course, they're totally unappreciative of this, and and so we need to support ourselves in whatever small ways we I see old Mark Grinnan back there. <laughs> He's a, one of them churchy guys. And so this guy was in our membership. And we had a habit of meeting at breakfast there. Uh, the SA people like you do at your diner here would get together some morning for breakfast. So he came into one of our meetings, our breakfast things, and, and he had a face about as dark as his black shirt. And I said, Max, I said, what is wrong with you? Oh, nothing, nothing, I'm just fine. And he proceeded, you know, in the, the meeting stuff. It wasn't until two weeks later that I found that he had been at the International Council of Churches, which that year happened, that was would have been in 83, happened to be at uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. He's at the International Council of Churches and lost his sobriety there. Old habits, you know, run deep. But he wasn't wanting to tell us because it would have a bad effect on us if he were to tell us that he'd slipped. And so he was going to lie to us. <laughs> and he was lying out of a face as black as his shirt. And what's, what's, the, what's the answer? And the answer is simple. Old Rick down in... Phoenix, he had a name for it. He called it the S.A. Shine. So I tell you what, sunshine, I can look at your faces and I can tell your sobriety. If you got the S.A. Shine, you're sober today. And if you ain't got the S.A. Shine, you are either not sober or you are fooling hard with getting not sober real quick. So that S.A. Shine is, is, is the truth. And any of them lies we tell is for them fools out there that is lies and them so-called fools out there ain't stupid enough that they can't see that darkness. 
So when I came into SA, uh, I just quit flat out lusting. And uh, I'd walk across the street. If I could see some woman coming towards me, I might have trouble with him, and I'd walk across the street to avoid her. And to give you an example of what SA was like in its earliest days, the, the young guys at the meeting were saying, what the hell are you doing? You're giving up the best part of life. That's how little understanding there was of lust in the early days of the meeting. And you see, we didn't have a book. Uh, the stuff that, you know, that's so strong on lust, all we had was the, was the, 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 the statement, uh, to give up lust. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop lusting and become sexually sober. But even that in our meeting guide, and I've still got a copy of it at home, that original meeting guide that was given me by my sponsor, he had crossed out and at the willingness of other members of the group to become sexually sober. Because to him, giving up lust meant giving up the worst of his affairs and having ten girlfriends at one time, and you know, some of that excess. But sexually sober, you know, that's that's optional. But uh, I didn't fortunately pay any attention to what I heard. I knew I had to stop lusting and did everything I could to stop lusting and associated with the winners who wanted to stop lusting. And when about the third or fourth meeting, the topic of lust came up and I was talking about it in the meeting and my own sponsor got so pissed off at me that he got up and walked out of the meeting. And with our, so I was without a sponsor. And fairly early in the meeting, Roy told me he didn't want me to talk to him, call him anymore. So I didn't have any support there. But I had Rick and a couple of others in that early meeting. And then we had to go to Oklahoma City because a couple of my kids had to go through alcoholism treatment in Oklahoma City. And then a daughter and a son were both there as alcoholism counselors in two different organizations. So as we went through family weeks with our two kids, we were told, hey, you should stay here and support your whole family in recovery. And the ones who came through uh, the family weeks would then stay there in Oklahoma City, too. So it would be four of our five kids would be living there in Oklahoma City. We'd be living there. So uh, I was fortunate in that my work could be done on the phone any place. And so I... Uh, said, okay, we'll live in Oklahoma City for the summer instead of going back to Bozeman. So we moved to Oklahoma City. And then I had to start a group. So I went into an AA meeting. I, I don't like to do this, but I did say in an AA meeting that I'm a, uh, a grateful Al-Anon and a recovering sexaholic. And another woman uh, heard me say that and uh, came in and we got a group started. And that's Sylvia who was sober from that time on. So we got that group going. And we stayed my wife and I stayed in Oklahoma City. And we started trying to figure out what sexual sobriety was. And uh you know, and these were the things that we that we figured out. So I remember one lust attack I had there in Salt Lake. Uh, it was a hot summer, and uh, we were coming into this pizza place, and it was a pizza place with um, uh, 
video games and stuff in the front part of it. So we were just walking in, and just as I walked by one of these aisles, a gal just came around that aisle, and she had just a terry cloth band around her top. And I had this instant feeling of, I want to rip that band off her and see her breasts, and then they can lead me away to prison for the rest of my life. Do I qualify, boys? <laughs> so, you know, it's such a clear indication of the total insanity. You know, here I was with a family that I loved, and I was had relocated there so I could be with the family and help them in recovery. I was going to meetings. I had, uh, by then, 17 years of 12 step, and yet... Just let me add it just for three seconds, and I'll throw the rest of my life away. But I kept staying with the program. And the early ones of us are a tattered remnant, like I say, of those, because we had all of the difficulties that anybody has, but we didn't have any support. To speak of. It was very little. We had God and a, and a few people helping us. And so that's why groups were so tough to start and why things went so slow there at first. But I had the most revolutionary example of carrying the message and it's an overwhelming thing for you to hear and you know a couple of you guys were asking me about this. Uh, I had, my wife and I were two of, uh, we're not supposed to talk about other 12-step programs here. Well, I, I can keep the name out of it. My wife and I were instrumental in founding another 12-step program, and we were the original founders, co-founders of that program. And my books talked about that fellowship and brought in hundreds of people who wrote in and wanted to join it all around the country. In fact, one of the women involved in that said, how does it make you feel that almost all of our mail comes because of your books? Well, beautiful. But I saw there that I could bring in somebody. I could have the information. The post office is over there, and they could find the post office. But they'd start a group, and the group would just pretty soon it'd be 40 people, and they'd have to start a new group. Whereas the little group that I had in Bozeman, Montana, just didn't go anyplace. Just puttered along with just three, four, five, six people. And I, I was seeing that I could not attract, and I was very conscious of the AA tradition, and this is a program of attraction, not promotion. And I saw that I could not attract anything. And I said, what is wrong with me that I can't attract anything? And so then, when I came into essay, I saw, okay, that's the problem. I didn't think about it quite so much until, in retrospect, looking back. But I was able to go to Oklahoma City, and, and pretty soon we had a meeting. And then in about um, April, I think it was, and uh, the tapes are now available, in April, we uh, I was asked to come down to Provo and give a retreat for Overeaters Anonymous, and I said, I don't know about overeating very much. And... Uh, but I'll talk about my sexual addiction, and uh, these uh, there were 50 women there, and I spent that retreat that weekend spe 
speaking about my sexual addiction and as I, well as I could understand it. And out of that retreat came the Salt Lake group. A woman came up afterwards and she said, uh, uh, could I, do you think I could start an SA group in this, you know, an SA group? I said, you're too young. She said, oh, how old do you have to be? And of course I was pulling her leg. I said, 35 or 38 or something like that. But she realized that I was kidding and uh, started it. And that's a fascinating story because there had been a guy down there in Salt Lake who saw that he was sexually addicted. He's been in AA for 15 years. And he he was a counselor. And while well, he didn't see he was sexually addicted, he, he, want, he saw he was troubled some by his sexual addiction. But as a counselor, he thought, I would like to... He saw a program on prostitution. He thought, I would like to find a way to help prostitutes. So, which is not a strange thought, really. And so, uh, this woman that had come up to me, unbeknownst to me, was now a real estate agent, but she had formerly been a prostitute. And she had a good friend at home who was a prostitute. So she went home and got her friend and said, hey, we got an answer, and we know this crazy guy, Steve, and uh, so the three of us will sit down and have a meeting. But because they were all three in AA, and they heard had heard from me about what a first step in SA was, they very cunningly said, and we'll do our first steps together before we get anybody else in the meeting. <laughs> so they each took turns doing their first steps at, you know, when it could be a nice little close group that they could control. So it was Here's this counselor who's going to help prostitutes have a couple of prostitutes come and save his bacon. And uh, so that's how Salt Lake got going in, or how um, SA got going in Salt Lake. Well then, then I went to Minneapolis, uh, or to Bozeman, and I had a school of life where people came because of my books from all over the country. And I walked in there, and that had been going, let's see, this was in 83, so it started in 77, so it had been going about five, six years. And some people from, some friends of mine from Canada, or some people from Canada had come down and become dear friends. And I walked in and started telling my essay story, and this this pair of friends from Canada, we'd helped them get into AA. Because he'd said to me, well, Jess, uh, his, his wife was, could see she was alcoholic, but he said, well, I don't see that I'm an alcoholic. I just, you know, smoke a little pot once in a while. That's no problem, is it? I said, well, Jerry, I don't know. I said, there's a better way. And on that statement alone, the guy, you know, joined AA after his wife came in. So, anyway, he heard my story then uh, five years later or seven and said, oh, my God, that too. I'm a sexaholic. So now we got a, an essay group in Edmonton, Alberta then out of that. So he starts up out there. Well then, uh, the people in Seattle, the alcoholics in Seattle, had invited our family out because we're famous alcoholics and to give a retreat. So we gave a retreat out there. The whole family did. And uh, uh, in the course of it, I said, uh, in, for I won't get into what I said in this context, but I said, I'll have a special meeting tonight for anybody here who might feel they're sexually addicted. And there were quite a few people at that meeting that first evening who thought they might be sexual addicted. And I went through my story and some of the people went around the room telling their stories. 
And it was so startling because you could see so clearly the difference between the people who were sexually addicted and those who had sexual problems. It's like the heroin addicts that came out of Vietnam. Ninety percent of the heroin addicts out of Vietnam got off heroin when, heroin when they got back here. You took away that environmental stress and they could function as non-heroin addicts. Uh, so what it is, some people have periods of their time where they have sexual problems or act out quite a bit, but it isn't, the, it, that drug doesn't turn their crank like it does for us, so they don't stay. And, uh, so the second night then, we had a meeting just for the people who identified as being sexaholic, and they went back to, to Seattle and started a meeting. Uh, there had been a meeting earlier, but it, it had died out. And uh, uh, so then I went to Minneapolis and spoke to this 12-step fellowship that I'd been such a part of and said, hey, one of the reasons that I had not been able to exemplify this fellowship in the way that I should have was because of this other addiction and told my essay story to that group. And because of that, there were some guys there from Minneapolis who went and started a Minneapolis group. And then I sent some literature to my friend in Germany, and he started at his clinic, uh, an essay uh, thing in Germany, and uh, through that clinic of his. Now, there were some other people in Germany uh, interested in essay and who had contacted Roy, and I don't know just what the chronology of that stuff was about that same time. And uh, then um, well, that was about it, but the point is, you see, all of a sudden I had a message to carry. I could demonstrate what it was I was talking about. If you can't demonstrate it, you can carry information. So we're all, you know, we're all good at that. We can all do that. But it's it, it, the, the thing that is really compelling is our demonstration. Like my son Joe said, Dad, wherever you go, you're like Johnny Appleseed, an essay group springs up. And it was so startling to me to see the difference where I couldn't, I couldn't carry uh, nothing. It was like a sieve, trying to carry water in a sieve. The day I stopped lusting, the minute I stopped lusting, you know, I could carry water in my hand or anything. Because I had, I had something that, that people could be attracted to. Now there's there's no there isn't anything that you can do to control that. You can simply know that, and it will always help you to know that you can't carry the message any more in a, in a sense in demonstration than what you've got. You can't demonstrate beyond your ability beyond your ability to to, to demonstrate in practice. You can't go beyond that. So you can come to somebody and tell them my story, and that won't do much except carry some information to them. You have to be the story. You're the only, like somebody said it so beautifully one time when they, in SA or in AA, 
They said, you are the only AA big book that many people will ever read. And the same thing applies here. You are the own, your lives are the only essay book that most people will ever read. So we carry this then through our lives. So I was stopping lust and stopping it in every possible way I could. And, oh, I know, when I went to Oklahoma City, 30 days after I came in for the first my first visit over there, both my son and daughter, who are both alcoholism counselors, both said, Dad, you're different. So just 30 days after stopping this drug all out, they were able to see a difference in me. Now, you see what that tells us about what our drug does? We don't even realize it wasn't that they looked at my face and said, you're different. All of a sudden, the human volcano, like when they would do something wrong, uh, I would uh, not do anything and neglect it, and they'd do something wrong, and I'd not do anything and neglect it, and then they'd do something wrong, and I'd erupt like Mount St. Helens. And they'd think, what in the hell did I do to deserve this? And the answer is nothing. The old man had just erupted. And they'd look at me just dumbfounded. Well, what was happening, you see, is some of that harshness was going away because it was associated with my lusting, associated with my blindness. And what's happening in my life is I'm developing more and more of a compassion and an ability to empathize with people, whereas before I had only the ability to see in people what it was I needed and how they were reacting to me to give me the approval or other things that I wanted. Okay. Now, one problem some of you guys are having, don't let it bother you any. Some of you are getting sleepy as hell because it's hot and, and this stuff drones on and on. But don't worry about it. You can buy the tapes. <laughs> Hear anything you miss later. <laughs> so just enough of you stay awake to help me keep going. That's all I need. And if if everybody goes to sleep, I'll wake somebody up. <laughs> so don't let it bother you. But, you know, here's my son and daughter. Say, just 30 days of stop and lust. Dad, you're different. That was after 17 years and one month of 12-step program. Because I had 17 years when I came in, but 17 years and one month later and stop and lust. They say, Dad, you're different. So 17 years of 12-step program ain't worth that much. But 17 years and one month when you stop and lust is worth a ton. And my relationships with my children, with my wife, with everybody in the world have changed radically. I've got a whole new class of friends. A whole bunch of people that used to be friends are gone for some reason. We don't have any common interests. And there's a new group of people who... I'd put him up, if, if, if President Clinton was coming to town, I'd be proud to introduce him to him. Now, I'm sorry that offends your political sensibilities. We'll pick a Republican. <laughs> so, 
So that's the that's the first part of the disease is the lust part. I think I need your help right now. Is uh, uh, ask me some questions. Yes, Roger. I think I think there's a reason for that, Roger. I think that you have to have a fairly. Uh, uh, to me, sexaholism is skewed towards the uh, upper echelon of, of intelligence and occupation. Uh, to to get as much as out of a, 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 a funny old picture in a Sears Roebuck catalog and a set of ideas, you've got to have quite a bit of gray matter to work with. Uh, this is not saying anything, saying, you know, I admire, and I, I, I grew up in a working class family. And, and I am, if anything, probably the happiest when I'm with working class people. So I have a total respect and honor for them and what they're doing. But this is, uh, my wife observed the same thing when she walked into Essendon the first time down in uh, Phoenix. She thought she's going to run into a bunch of just really meeps in Mother Hubbard dresses and here was the wife of a psychiatrist and and wives of huge business successful businessmen in Phoenix and with Rolex watches and driving Mercedes and it was not what you think of as your usual addicted crowd. So that but that's just the nature of the disease. And uh so yeah there's uh um, well, if you can get out of the addiction, whatever career you're in, if you're going to hell of a, go a hell of a lot better, I'll talk about that a little later too. Well, I, no, I can talk about that now because it's part of the early stages of lust. Right away, I started seeing life with a hell of a lot more clarity. So what does that say about lust? What lust is, it's like mud on your windshield. And you don't realize it. You've been driving with mud in your windshield all your life, so you're used to kind of sneaking through the, you know, cracks to see when the hell's coming and you run into a lot more people than when your windshield is clear. Okay. So, uh, there were just a hell of a lot of rewards for me as I got rid of lust. Things just went better. And the big feeling I had, and I thank you for your help, Roger, and the big feeling I had was a feeling of integrity. Because now I was not a house divided. I was not a person who was saying one thing and then horrible, disgusting, secret, private life. I had integrity. I was one thing. What you saw on the outside. What I'm saying you to you today, you follow me around in Bozeman and you will see that demonstrated in my life all day long, every day. I have, there is no posturing in what I'm doing here. 
I am not trying to convince anybody of anything. Like old Vince used to tell me, he said, I'd see those guys sitting at the head of the tables in AA. And he said, I wondered what it would take to sit at the head of the table. And and then he said, I saw what it took to sit at the head of the table. He said, that is, I teach only from my experience. I am not telling you anything that I haven't already experienced over and over and over again. Late in the last talk, and that's going to be the best one all, so I don't give a damn how tired you are. Stay here in chance that you might stay be awake when I say some of the very important things I'm going to say there, because I've had a, a little bit of experience into some things that are just just blow my mind. I was telling some of the guys about them last night who were sitting around having fun. Just blow my mind in the later stages. Because you see, to me, the, the line that I don't hear talked about in AA hardly at all, if ever. The line ahead of the promises says, before we are halfway through. Well, what does that mean? Well, typical AA recovery career runs 10 to 40 years. Okay, half of that is 5 to uh, 20 years. Okay, before we get to half is somewhere before 5 to 20. We're going to know a new happiness and all these other promises. So the point is, we don't have to, we don't have to wait to some damn day where we're practically dead and then this is going to happen to us. We're talking about right now. We're talking about pretty soon. So this is not something of the pie in the sky, this little reward way the hell out there in the future. We're talking about a lot of tremendous things happening right now. And they did. All kinds of good things. Like one of the things that happened a year after I came in, my wife said, Jess, I see the handwriting on the wall and you haven't got the energy to do the work that you're doing in the advertising work. And I think you should take disability retirement. This was in 84. And I said, well, I don't think the doctor will give it to me, but if you'll give it to me, I'll take it. And she said, well, I'll check with the doctor and by God, he would give it to me. So I went on disability retirement. Okay, these were the years in which I was expecting to do most of the saving for my retirement from the ages of 58 to 65. Those were the big income years and uh, the years when I was had everything paid for and was had already on a was already on a pace because when I came back from that situation of learning to grow up, I started uh, liquidating assets and turning them into financial investments and stuff, doing some preparing for retirement. And all of a sudden, I had to give up the idea. I said, well, okay, God will take care of us. And I was able to listen to my wife. Well, I tell you, that's a hell of a lot of recovery. <laughs> so she, But she had something tremendous for me. So I went on seven years of disability retirement. And was in disability retirement until I was 65. And then now in the three years since then, I've been in on that disability retirement. I couldn't do anything on the way it was set up. There was no provision for working some without knocking the whole thing out. So I had seven years of full retirement, and now I'm doing some things. And then also God has given me a whole new bundle of energy. So you see me, you see me in my own element in Bozeman, and I tell you, you're seeing a guy with a hell of a lot more energy than I ever had before. So yeah. Why is it that some people 
that are addictive and obsessive compulsive need different types of psychotropic medication and others don't? And what your position is on that? Okay, why do some people who are addicted need different kinds of medicines and others don't? And uh, there's a very simple answer to it. God created our chemistry. And just as we, you'll see a, an oversensitivity to, well, you, you, you'll see a varying sensitivity to different drugs. It's easier to understand uh, when you studied the, uh, there's a tremendous book that I uh, read in my PhD called, the bio, called Biochemical Individuality. And for example, the size of each of our livers ranges from, like we got livers in here without alcohol treatment. We got livers four times the size of other livers. Okay, the liver is just one of the uh, organs that produces, you know, all the physiological reactions. Okay, you take a, put a big liver and a little, uh, say a little pancreas, and you got one combination. You put a big liver and a big pancreas, and you got another combination. Those are just two of the organs that are associated with some of these things in the body. So, uh, we, we think of ourselves as kind of all the same, and, and nothing could be further from the truth. Like, uh, like an ongoing argument. Uh, like what, psych, what, what specific? Like, like uh, you think pro- Prozac, okay. Okay, uh, and the answer is they are. Uh, but again, should you take them? And uh, to me, Bill has laid down the line beautifully on that for us. Uh, by and large, well, not by and large, we have to leave that decision to that doctor and if there are something, is there, if there's something the doctor desperately needs somebody to take, they can take it. But by and large, most of the answer to most of those pills lies in this program. Uh, the, one of the most radical explanation, examples of that is when Ram Das was, uh, and Richard Alpert, you know, did the, the LSD stuff. And Ram Das went to India and, uh, his guru, uh, after a bit, said, uh, I understand that you've got some LSD with you. And, of course, Ram Das, being a true druggie, uh, had a couple of heavy hits of it, just in case he ran into a certain difficulty that he might not be able to handle well. <laughs> so the guru said, give it to me. So he hands him these couple big hits of LSD, and the guru takes them both and pops them in his mouth and continues talking and shows absolutely no sign of any reaction to that big hit of LSD that would have knocked our heads off. Why? Simple. Because we ain't clean, our bodies ain't clean, they're all screwed up, and we can't handle much of anything. So that the drug does its work because of that. As we get on a program, we gradually get ourselves and our bodies quieted down, and this, the, the, the balance and unity and harmony that the 12-step program gives us gradually takes a hold to the point that our whole chemical system is changed. We not only we don't need Prozac, it, we wouldn't want to introduce it into our body. I'm getting more and more sensitive about what things I can take into my body. Like I can't take, I can't take a cup of caffeine, caffeinated coffee. I might drink 
if there, that's all that's available, I might drink a quarter of a cup of it or something, but I can feel the buzz just from that. So by and large, I don't drink coffee anymore. And there's a whole bunch of things I don't want to take into me anymore. Now, you tell a person who is a heavy user or, or a heavy need for, say, uh, some tranquilizing drug, that they can't take them and they, they just come unglued. Uh, because the just as people come unglued and we say they can't have lust anymore. They cannot conceive of life without that. And, 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 and they're, they're really right. As they are constituted, they desperately need that drug. So when we come in, and I hear a lot of people in AA do this, they just flat out say, get the hell off every drug instantly and uh, all this other stuff. And in my experience, it, that doesn't work very well. All you're looking for is an argument if you take that position. What I'd rather say to the person is, well, it's like I said to Jerry. Yeah, you know, he's doing a, some, some marijuana, but there's a better way. And uh, in my experience, uh, uh, 90% of the tranquilizers uh, need to be dispensed with, and I want the doctor and the patient together to decide who that is, rather than me say, blanket edict, no. So that's, that's how I feel on that subject. Thank you. Yeah. Louder, please. Essay groups start working with essay groups, and then you talk to like an AA group, and then the AA, from the AA group, someone would meet with you and discuss starting an essay group. Yeah. Do you ever find any concern about going to essay meetings and I mean, AA meetings and talk about um, your essay problem? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in my, the question was, uh, what about going to uh, an AA group and talking about your essay problem, uh, I made an exception in that case in Oklahoma City where I desperately needed to find some other people that might be interested. But to me, I, I must respect the integrity of AA and not talk about my sexual problems uh, or my sexual, particularly my sexual addiction in there. And I must restrict talk of my sexual problems only as it is related to alcoholism. And I must respect that group. Now, also, I would like people who come into essay to do to give us the same respect and not talk about their their therapy. I don't care if a damn what uh, they can go 26 therapists and have 26 other psychological therapies they're using. But in in essay, I would like them to talk about the 12 steps, how they're using them in their life, and the problems that they see that are directly related to the 12 steps. I. Uh, I'm able, usually, to listen to therapy talk in, in AA meeting, or SA meeting. But uh, a lot of times the effort that I'm having to make is, I'm afraid, written all over my face. And I don't think I'm projecting much of a feeling of warmth and comfort. Does that get at your... Okay. Yeah. Um, I want to know, you had 17 years in AA. Yeah. Work the steps. Right. What was the difference once you walked into essay? How did you work the steps different? Okay. How did I work the steps different when I walked into essay? That's a real good question. What I did is I did my first step over. I wrote down what I advise people that I work with is for the first step is you write 
down notes, not write it out. You can write it out if you want to, but by and large just notes of the sexual things you did that bothered you. Okay, and I spent, it took me, uh, I, I did my first step over two meetings. In the, at that time, they did, they broke up the first steps and so they could have some meeting and some first step. So I had about an hour in each of those two meetings for my first step. And I wrote down, I still got the notes at home. Uh, I think it was about uh, nine pages, about 14 little items per page of sexual things I had bothered, I had done that bothered me. The minute I had done that, it was gone. Those things never came to my mind again. It was a complete, like I shovel all the garbage out of my pickup and it's gone. It doesn't, the sun can get out there and it doesn't smell anymore. So that, that was the biggest difference in the steps. Then I went through with my sponsor in SA uh, real quick because I was going to leave in 30 days and worked all the other, the first nine steps and uh, with him and did my uh, fourth and fifth and did my uh, uh, my men's steps with him and but worked them. There wasn't much in those in those other steps. There wasn't much difference from what I'd done before. So the big change that I got really came from seeing my powerlessness over lust and my unmanageability in my life because of it. And uh, so first step, and then uh, stopping lust. Those were the those were the two big things that made I think made my program different from that point on. Because to me, what I see people, I see people. Uh, a lot of people working this program, they're really doing a two-step, like what the old AA is called, the two-step. You know, they're doing a part of one, I'm powerless over alcohol. They're doing a part of 12, and they manage to skip the God completely. They're trying to practice these principles in all their affairs. Okay, that doesn't work. Uh, we're, we're building a lifeline to save our lives here. And that's a lousy kind of a lifeline when we got a, a two-strand Rope holding us over a chasm that lies 400,000 feet below us. I don't want to trust myself that kind of a rope. And um, I'll, t- I'll go into more detail on that in the in the next session because that's that's the key idea I want to develop. But I I don't think there's much di- well, it's what those diff- those differences that are seemingly in small areas are are were a huge difference. So it doesn't seem like much, but I think it was a lot. Yeah. What would a person do like in a situation where there's a key issue and your AA sponsor says you should do this about the issue and the SA sponsor says you should do that and they're totally two different conflicting opinions about what to do with Okay, the issue is an AA sponsor says one thing and an SA sponsor says another. How are you going to solve the problem? The beautiful, easy problem. Just ask God. God will guide you as to which thing to go. But the thing to me is, by and large, to me, a person, uh, the path of, of a successful program, by and large, makes everybody happy. That it, an unhappiness on one side or the other of some person is a clue that I want to look at and say, okay, something is wrong here. I, I want to see if I can find some way to correct both situations. So I want to solve them both, ideally, rather than choose between one and the other. Yeah? Yes, Recently, I was at a meeting where the uh, sheriff of that venue said outside of the 
12-step program. Yeah? How do you handle that? Or is there some individuals who want to make the banking say, and to me, a share has to be kind of rooted in that, in, in the 12 steps. Yeah. And it's, it's, it can be difficult sometimes because the meeting has a tendency to get out of hand and everybody kind of throws their garbage on the table. Yeah. Can't get away from the steps. Uh, well, and the answer is, it's, uh, the how do you solve the problem of people talking about other therapies in 12 steps? And to me, we're powerless by the very nature of our program to do anything directly against that. There are a bunch of indirect things that we can do, and I was at a meeting last night here, which is a beautiful example of that, and that is you have a big book meeting where you read, uh, you know, in that case they read the 11th step, and uh, the discussion was uh, tended to be related to that step. Okay, those are the kind of things that really help that. Uh, uh, Clancy Tapes recently, for example, he is just so angry at the victimization stuff that's being talked about in AA meetings, you can see he wants to kill somebody. But I've got a suspicion that he sits in AA meetings and, and keeps his big trap shut. Because I cannot criticize, I can't judge uh, another person. I can be in doing it in my head a lot, and then that ain't the best. When I keep do it in the head and, and it, it, it keep my mouth shut, but doing it in the head and keeping my mouth shut is a lot better than nothing. And the next best thing is I got to pray like a mother that I'll develop more compassion and understanding and love and acceptance for everybody. And because uh, the twelve-step programs are, in a sense, their greatest strength in right now, in a way, is hamstringing them. Because they gotta shut up and listen. And so people are coming using these listening ears as, my God, I got somebody that'll pay attention to any damn thing I wanna say. And so there's a lot of that going on. And, but it's just like Martin Luther King, you know, when he was trying to preach nonviolent, uh, reaction, he's saying you gotta take anything anybody dishes out to you and you can't retaliate. So the two guys that go in the in the eating place down there and wherever Rosa Parks was, Montgomery, Alabama or some that town, they have to sit there and take that harassment from the people that are harassing them, but they got the right to be there. And so we got to go in those meetings and listen to non-12-step stuff and by and large keep our mouths shut. Now maybe somebody will come up with some better idea than that, I don't know. I, I, I sure wouldn't say I've got the definitive answer, but that's where I am for me right now. Yeah. And at least the meetings that I went to in AA, they got they allowed cross And what Bob was talking about, it's a typical AA meeting I used to go to, somebody would put a problem on the table, and people would just shoot back the cross In the essay tradition, there's no cross Yeah. How do you feel about that? The question was, uh, AA in many places allows crosstalk and we go against it and I think there's a I think it's a vital uh, change for us sexaholics have the biggest problem of anything I've ever seen that's why in the conferences we had to impose timers on everybody one of our early conferences was destroyed practically by sexaholics who talked endlessly and any you put any one of us like every one of you are out there are lusting like mothers because you all want to be sitting here. 
You give any sexaholic a microphone and they're good for six hours. Okay, so I think that it's that kind of thing. And, and business meetings, I, I can't even bear yet to go to business meetings of Sexaholics Anonymous at conventions. I'd let other people go and if, if there ever comes up something, I always check out and know what's up and I, I, I always kind of know which way the vote's going to go. If I'm ever needed, I'll be there. But so far, I haven't been needed. And, and and because everybody has got to shoot his mouth off on every aspect of every issue that's presented. So to me, we are constitutionally incapable of knowing any bounds, restrictions, anything, and we must not crosstalk. Uh, helpful as some crosstalk might be once in a while, <laughs> to say, let's get this, you know, victim crap out of these meetings and let's get on and talk about AA. Yeah. There's a meeting going on, it's either a topic meeting or a big book meeting, and a guy has a problem that's effect, that has a direct effect on his sexual sobriety. Right. And so he'll start this, I have to, I have to say this, I have to talk about this, it's important. Yeah. All the hands go up, wait a minute, you're, you're off the topic, you're off the subject of, of the big book. Is that, is that what you're going to do that with? Well, I don't know. I, I don't know. There, the, uh, what you're talking about there, an example of where People are saying you're off the topic and you're out of the thing. In in those kind of situations, above all, I've got to trust to God. My tendency in that situation would keep my mouth shut and just see what the hell is playing out and let it play out. And I'm very, very hesitant to ever interpose myself in what I see worked out unless I see somebody doing some real harm to another. One example is... At a meeting, we had a guy say, hey, uh, I'm gay, and I felt that one of the other guys in this meeting after the previous meeting I was at put the moves on me. And the guy who he was accusing of doing, and he accused a guy directly in the meeting of that. I felt you so-and-so were putting the moves on me. And the guy said, no, I wasn't. I piped up and said, yeah, I, I watched that, and I thought you were. I came to the defense of the guy who felt wronged in that situation. Now, I don't want to do that very often, buddy. I'll tell you, not for me. I don't know what anybody else's preference is. But to me, every time possible, I want God to solve the problem instead of me. Now, in that case, those people weren't doing much to let God solve the problem. But I'm not going to jump in there and decide, well, since God is absent here, I, I obviously got to take a hand in this thing. Uh, I would just as soon not take that chance. Yeah. Yes, I wanted to ask a question about uh, women in the program. And we have difficulty in this area attracting women. Right. And um, it's sometimes difficult to find yourself uh, a woman uh, with, uh, alone in a group with a lot of men. And right. And how that should be. Or let's say with maybe another woman you don't connect with. How, how can a woman handle that situation? Okay. Uh, she asked, how do you handle the problem of, you know, the fact that there are women in such a minority? And the answer is very simple. It is a damn tough problem, but you have to want sobriety bad enough to persevere in the face of it. Imagine, uh, you know, like in the front piece of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says 100, women, 100 men and one woman. <laughs> Imagine how that first woman had to have wanted alcoholism when... Here's 99 guys telling her, you don't belong in here. <laughs> what do you know about alcoholism? Some dumb housewife who sits alone, you know, that ain't alcoholism. 
and, and and she's got to have enough hunger for recovery to resist a whole bunch of stupid, dumb stuff. And uh, I, my heart goes out to you, uh, but I can't do your work for you. And you're going to have to do that. With God's help, you can do it. Okay. Okay, we're, uh, God has been very, very kind to me and guided me through this thing and carried me to this point. I've got two more things. Uh, the next talk will be news. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like hearing ten bad things from your doctor and banker and lawyer all at the same time. That's what I'm going to give you the next time, so be sure to stick around. You'll love it. Now, and then the last thing, I'm going to give you the most powerful good news. And not only is it powerful good news, it is the damnedest trick on all the people who saw themselves as being straight-laced and us being a bunch of jerks, as you'll ever hear. So it's funnier than hell. So thank you very much. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.